Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes fils et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, today's episode is going to be a unique episode for us. Uh, development that's been uh, really great has been the number of suggestions we get from listeners on guests we should have to the podcast. Well, today's guest actually was a very strong suggestion of two-time guest Juliana LaRue. Juliana told us that she had recently seen Dartmouth professor of English Ernest Hebert read his essay, Sister George and What's in a Name, and she said we absolutely had to see if we could get Ernest to read it on the podcast. So that's what we did. We are incredibly excited to say that today we welcome Ernest Hebert to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Now, Ernie Hebert is a writer of a dozen novels and a number of nonfiction works. He has been a reporter for the Keen Sentinel, a columnist for the Boston Globe. In 2006, he was chosen Fiction Writer of the Year by the New England Booksellers Association. He is a professor emeritus of English at Dartmouth College. Ernie, welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Hey, I'm, I'm so happy to be uh, on this podcast. Well, I'm glad to have you. Can we start with your story? Maybe tell us where you grew up. Oh, I, I grew up in uh, Keene, New Hampshire. It, it's funny, I, I grew up a Hebert, but my, my parents uh, uh, spoke uh, French in the house. Sure. And, of course, they didn't pronounce it Hebert. They pronounced it Hebert. Eventually, I, I went to uh, South, uh, South Louisiana, where, and there I became an Hebert. People would say... Hebert, that's a fine South Louisiana name. <laughs> no, nobody ever said Hebert, that's a fine New England name. So I was really, uh, I, I felt like a, a little bit like royalty in South Louisiana. <laughs> now, was there a large Franco population in Keene? We haven't heard the Keene story at all. Well, you know, there's a, there, there is a, a, a real French Canadian presence in, in Keene, but it was not dominant in any way. The, uh, there was only, there was one church, St. Bernard's Church. Uh, and the pastor was almost Irish, always an Irishman. Uh, and the Sisters of Mercy, of course, uh, uh, have their base, uh, you know, their, their founder was Irish. So, um, so, the, so, they, they, so the Irish were the kind of dominant uh, Catholic uh, group, followed by the Italians. Wow. Uh, and, and then the French... Uh, we, we we were number three, and and the, the, the Polish kids and the Lithuanians they were distant uh, yeah. down down the road, you know. Gotcha. So were there like French Franco American organizations at all that your parents belonged to? You know, uh, there was a we had a crisis point uh, in my family when I was five years old. My, my parents when my parents met. Uh, they spoke French to each other, and sure. French was the was the uh, language of their romance. <laughs> uh, so, as a result, they uh, even though uh, you know they were both living in Keene and, and lived like any other Anglo, uh, they spoke French in the house. And so, uh, as their firstborn, that was the first language I learned. Sure. And uh, I I didn't know very much English. And when I went to kindergarten at uh, Lincoln School in Keene. Uh, something happened, and I couldn't tell you what it was. All I know is that when I came home, uh, my parents had a had a uh, t- told me later on that that it was traumatic for me. 
Uh, and so they decided to stop speaking uh, French uh, to, uh, in the house. And the result was I blew off French and, and never spoke it again. That's wild. Now, did you guys... That's, that's kind of sad. You it know? is very sad. Now, did you guys hang on to any of the Franco traditions? Like, did you guys have pork pie at oh, yeah. events? Okay. Oh, oh yeah. And I, I, I remember... I remember little swear words like immortalize. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. La tête de pioche, you know, and uh, <laughs> I think I even get the accent right when I say it. But yeah. I, I uh, and of course my family was very heavily French. My uh, my uncle, Catholic priest that I'm named after, uh, was the pastor of St. Marie's Church in Manchester, New Hampshire, when he was a Monsignor. And, uh, and uh, he wanted to be bishop, so he was a real big shot in New Hampshire, uh, you know, New Hampshire uh, uh, Catholic hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, obviously St. Marie's was noted as kind of like the go-to French-Canadian church. Even though there was eight of them, the one that everybody held up as like the French-Canadian church was St. Marie's on the west side. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know what to think about this idea that the Catholics in New England should separate by their, uh, you know, they, there was uh, their Irish Catholics and right. Italian Catholics and French Catholics, and uh, and somehow they, they they were as divided in their own way as uh, as anybody is, you know. You mentioned that your 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 folks were born in this country, growing up speaking French. Were your grandparents? Were they were the ones from Canada? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, my grandparents on both sides uh, came from Canada, and uh, among my father's side, uh, you know, my 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 great grandfather and my great grandmother were both Hebrews. <laughs> wow! I, I, and from the same town, so I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe they were related, for all I know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's funny. And, and of course, I had a I had a, uh, a relative of mine uh, did a genealogy, and discovered, of course, all the Hebrews come from. Uh, old Acadia. Sure. No, that's cool. Now, I'm reading some of your words that you you are married. Now, is is your is your yeah, I'm, I, go ahead. I married uh, I married Medora Lavoy or Lavoie. Lavoie. How you want to yes. say it? Yeah, <laughs> she's from uh, from Dover, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, we got married in 1969. We, so we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary this year. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Now, now, did you? Did she grow up speaking French? Did she go? No, not at no. all. Okay. No, no. It was. It was in a way. It was the same. It was almost the same story of, uh, of, of very conscious of your of your heritage. Sure. But uh, but ignoring it as much as possible. Gotcha. No, that's again. That's that's tough. Now, how how about your daughters? Do they hang on to the the heritage at all? Well, in a, in a small way, they didn't they didn't grow up uh, uh, Catholic because I rejected Catholicism. Uh, I think when I was six. <laughs> uh, Early on, okay. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, some people I think are naturally religious, and some people are not. Maybe it's a, a gene. I, I don't know, but I, I never have it. Even as a kid, uh, I was not a, a believer. It all seemed kind of kind of strange and ridiculous to me. Uh, the the whole religion thing, but anyway, to go back to your question about my kids, um, my both my daughters are very conscious of their of their heritage, but they don't it doesn't play much into their lives. 
I will say that my daughter, Nikki, uh, who's a bartender in Brooklyn, That's awesome. uh, goes by goes by Nicole A. Bear in New York. She's she's an A. Bear in New York. Good for her. That's cool. Yeah. I like she's, that. Now, she's also a poet. She's a poet oh, really? and a bartender. Wow. Well, it must be a lot. I bet she gets a lot of, uh, you know, different things that she can work with in her day-to-day as a bartender. You run into a number of people, I would think. No, various groups of people, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I think to be a bartender, you have to be a, a kind of a method actor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're a good one. I think that's right. I own a documentary that New Hampshire PBS had put out about 20 years ago. It was called Franco-Americans We Remember, and it interviewed a, a number of people, and you were in it a bunch, basically oh, really? telling, telling your story. Well, I've, done, I've done a zillion interviews, and I, I can't remember that one. <laughs> That's awesome. In fact, I don't remember most of them. I, I find that when I am talking, not much remains uh, later on. It's, uh, I, I'm much better uh, when I'm uh, the audience than when I'm the headliner. Sure. Well, the reason I was bringing this up is because you did tell a pretty cool story about your dad and about what he did for work and what his work schedule looked like and what his his life at his job looked like. And I wonder if you could maybe explain that for us. Oh, yeah. Well, my my dad, you know, my my dad was a a, a quiet man. He only had six, seven, or eight years of education, he was never quite sure himself wow. <laughs> when he left, uh, when he left uh, grammar school. And uh, he worked in a, in a cotton mill as a weaver. And he worked 55 hours a week, uh, one week days, one week nights, for 45 years. And uh, he, was, he was tired all the time. Sure. And so it was exhausting work. And I can remember between my junior and senior year in high school, uh, I wanted to play baseball, uh, uh, Babe Ruth baseball. Sure. Uh, but uh, but my dad said, no, I, I want you to work in the, in the mill with oh, me. Oh, wow. And uh, so he put me to work there for, for uh, you know, the same hours that he worked, 55 hours a week. Yeah. In, in, uh, in this incredible sweatshop. You know, it was the most purgatorial work I've ever done in my life. And I did it for one summer. And he did it for 45 years. And one... Uh, at the end of the summer, he said, well, how'd you like working in the shop? I said, well, I, I didn't like it at all. Right. And he said, he said, he said, good. He said, I, I don't ever want to see you back here. That's awesome. See, that reminds me of something. My, my mom, my mom's father worked 40 plus years in the mills in Manchester. And so my mom also, actually, she would do the full-time shift when she was in high school. She'd go during the day and then do the 3 to 11 at the mill at night. And I remember her once telling me that that was the greatest motivator she ever had to make sure to go to college. So I thought oh, really? That's good. Yeah. Did you say Manchester? Yes, yes, sir. You're a Manchester boy? Absolutely. Manchester, New Hampshire? Manchester, New Hampshire. St. George Church on Pine Street was where my family no, was No kidding. From. Yes, sir. Who knows? We may be related or something. <laughs> we probably know similar, my, similar people my, anyway. Yeah, my mother, you know, uh, uh, grew up on the west side, you know. Yeah. My, uh, my, yeah, uh. Uh, yeah, my, my anyway, I, I I still have Manchester friends. Bob Perot was uh, one of my heroes, you know. Yeah. Do you know Bob? Oh, we had him on the show. He is. Uh, I refer to him as a legend. He is absolutely like somebody. Those of us growing up in Manchester look up to beyond belief. For to me, he was the first one that told our story. Like yeah. Like I learned in school, you know. 
that, you know, there's this history that happened in Boston, maybe even a little bit on the seacoast. But then I got to pick up a Robert Perrault book and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I still do. Anytime I get the chance to see him speak, my parents get a chance to see him speak, we are there. He's the best. Well, he's the, he's the one who raised my consciousness. I, I, I was kind of uh, away from the whole Frenchie thing until I, oh, I kind of must have been in my 50s when I met Bob, and he totally turned my life upside down. That's awesome. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's hope yeah. so. But, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned you know, it. It, 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 even, it even had an effect on my books. You know, my my, uh, my main like, main character in my dark, I have six, I have seven interconnected uh novels about one New Hampshire town, Darby, New Hampshire. Right. And, um, and and Howard Elman, who's a, a working man, is the protagonist for the first book. And the seventh and the seventh book is a very, very important character. And so he, that's, that's, and he's a, kind of a, a Yankee kind of guy. Uh, but thanks to Bob, I decided, you know, I think I'm going to make some changes here. So in the, in the sixth book, which I call Spoonwood, Howard's son does some research and discovered that Howard, who's a, who's a foundling, by the way, he didn't know where he came from. His, his name is actually Latour. <laughs> so so I, I, I finally brought, brought in uh, some little bit of, uh, of French background, but it took me six books to get there. Yeah, you got there, though. I like that. Going back to your work, uh, you have a great quote on your Dartmouth page, and I want to make sure I get this right. It's, it's been my mission as a novelist to write about the working people without idealizing or demeaning them and without standing them up against the wall to represent some political ideology or notion of the author. I'm especially interested in the interior lives of working people, a territory ignored by most literary writers. And I made sure to write that down because I'm curious what your growing up in Keene, son of a mill worker, living that French-Canadian experience in your house uh, impacted your writing? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure. That, that was all uh, kind of in, integrated, but I, I, I think uh, this is kind of hard to explain, but for me, it was a, a kind of naivete about the world. My, my, gotcha. my parents were, were very, uh, very good, decent uh, people, but they were very uh, insular. They, they, you know, there, it was all about family, and we had they had very few uh, friends on the outside world, uh, and so I, I actually didn't know very much about the outside world. It wasn't until I went in the army, and then later went to work for the funk of it, that I began to have a, a clearer understanding of of things like, well, like a, like a steak, for example. I had my first steak when I was eighteen years old at <laughs> Valley Steakhouse. And it, and it had some pink in it, and and I thought this is so tasty. How come I never? My, my parents never never had steak. They, That's they, awesome. My my father would not eat meat that, that wasn't well done, and uh, and so a, a lot of my life had to do with uh, discovering the outside world uh, because I I never I, I never knew much about it. Now it's funny we've talked about you. Your pops a couple of times. And I'm curious because one thing that my, my grandfather always stressed, you know, he worked crazy hours in the mill himself, but he, without question, absolutely loved his job, which I thought was He weird. loved his job. What he, did he do? He loved it. He was a loom fixer. A loom fixer. Okay. Yeah. And he, again, because to him, it was like a, it was a trade. It was something he had to be trained to do. He got to work with his hands. He was respected <laughs> as somebody who could fix things when they went down. 
You yeah. Know? And he took yeah. kind of pride in all of that. So I'm guessing that what? your dad was not as thrilled with his life, with his occupation. No, but he never complained about it. You know, it was he never complained about it. But I will tell you a story. I think that is relative to to your 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 father's story, which was that my my dad always had long fingernails, and and he he was very uh, careful about keeping his hands soft. He used my mother's hand lotion. You know, sure. And this the summer I, I worked in the mill with him. He he ran a whole bunch of machines, and of course it was all piecework. Right. Yeah. Because absolutely. These, because these machines were running at the max, they were always breaking down. You know, a thread would break down. Right. And he had to watch him. And when a thread broke down, he had to shut down the machine down and fix it. And he used those long fingernails in a way that I I, I couldn't demonstrate to uh, tie the knots that you needed to tie real fast. Sure. So they could get his machine going again. No, that's yeah. so that's so interesting. I mean, that life's the conditions they had to work in. I don't honestly, I don't think I can ever having not been there, pictured it. I've heard the stories, I've read the stories, but I mean, you've seen it yourself. You knew what that was like. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I know one thing that uh, this one, one thing that I believe in. It's OSHA. Oh yeah, of course. Before, before when I was in that shop before OSHA, there were there were big huge gears always cranking around. There was a lot of crap floating in the air that uh, make your eyes water. The place was dangerous. Yeah, I can imagine. Right, and, and there were always people getting hurt, you know. I, I worked in a sawmill uh, briefly, and uh, I swear that two-thirds of the people... Uh, uh, it was a furniture manufacturing, so there were a lot of open saws. Sure. And there, there were no guards or anything. And Most of the people who worked there a missing digit or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. Your book series, your series of novels, and most biographies about you kind of start with those, the Darby Chronicles series. And I'm interested to find out why a series? Why did you not... Did you plan it as a series right from the beginning? Did you always know it was going to be seven novels? Yeah, well, my my first agent, Mavis McIntosh, who, who is a... Uh, uh, you know, one of the founders of Macintosh and Otis, the, the first uh, all-woman agency in New York City, was was a big deal, though I didn't know that at the time. She was an old lady. She told me, she said, young man, whatever you do, don't write a series. They'll only read, they'll only read the first one. And she was right. Uh, <laughs> only, the, only the Dogs of March has uh, has been a, a financial success. Uh, and that was a fairly modest one. Uh, but to go back to the essence of your question, I, I actually st- started a non-Darby book after I finished The Dogs of Marsh, but it, it, I just couldn't get going on it. And uh, and uh, a- after I completed The Dogs of Marsh, there were a lot of uh, unanswered questions that I had about the town and some of the characters, because, you know, I was writing the book from Howard Elman's perspective, so even though I had other characters, I didn't know with, with any depth what their stories were. But I was curious about them. So uh, actually, it started with a curiosity about uh, characters uh, in the Dogs of March who were not the, were not the big, not the headliners. Sure. And so I wrote the second book, uh, A Little More Than Kin. And then when I, while I was writing the third book, Whisper My Name, uh, I, I I had this epiphany where I could see the next two books uh, ahead of me. I, I had I actually had a rough 
plot line for The Passion of Estelle Jordan and Live Free or Die wow. in, in my head. At the same time, I knew that the, these books were not going to uh, make me rich by any <laughs> stretch of imagination. So I, I had to make a choice whether I wanted to remain writing the books that, that I wanted to write or whether I wanted to make some money uh, <laughs> uh, and try to write something more exciting. Sure. And uh, I, I, guess I, I just couldn't help myself. I, ha I had to stick with my, my original plan. Luckily, I, I was able to get a good job, so... <laughs> Uh, you know, teaching. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, that's very cool. So anyway, I, 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 I stuck with my guns, and I've, I've only written the books I wanted to write. Ah, I like that a lot. Now, you mentioned that you had kind of discovered this plot line in your head for a couple of the books, which I think is kind of fun because that's you described the, that you don't normally start with the plot when you when you write a book. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, 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 I, I, I start with the character and, um, uh, I started writing the dogs in March by writing a dig in his life. Now I, uh, I had it, uh, the idea I had, which, uh, was that I wanted to write about a working man who was tough and tender in his heart. And that's all I knew. And so, uh, I didn't know what the story was. I just know I wanted to write about this character. I was I just wrote a, a day in his life, an ordinary day in, where everything goes wrong. And it was it's through, through that writing, which is in longhand, by the way, on a yellow legal notepad. That's awesome. Uh, maybe a maybe hundred pages. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it was through that exercise that, that I began to see uh, some of the themes that would be in the book. And then to, to actually write the plot, I did something that I don't think many people do. I, I got in my, I had a little pickup truck, and I took off with, a, with a, one of those old-fashioned tape recorders that had big buttons. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and I, I talked into it. And uh, so I uh, and I drove all day, and I ended up in uh, a campground in Delaware. Uh, drove all day the next day, and by the time I got to New Mexico... I had a plot. <laughs> That's so great. And uh, I turned around and came home, and I I plotted all my books on the road. That's amazing. So every time you get a you you have a bunch of characters that you've developed, and you got to get in that automobile to figure out what exactly the story is going to be. Well, you you know when you drive alone, you tend to scheme. Everybody does that, right? <laughs> it's something you do. It tends to it's what you do when you're driving alone. Your your mind schemes. Well, that's what plotting is. It's not writing, it's scheming. And so the road is actually a, kind of a, a natural place to do the kind of thinking you need to do to plot a book. It used to be I could write it off on my taxes as a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually and actually feel I justify it because I, I'm exactly working sure. all, uh, all the while I'm going. And I, the last book I wrote, the, you know, the, uh, the Howard El Elman's Farewell, at the time, I was living in Westmoreland, New Hampshire, and uh, working at Dartmouth College. And so I plotted that book, going driving back and forth between Hanover and uh, Westmoreland, New Hampshire. That's awesome. Okay, so this interview has been way fun, but I'm super excited to have everybody hear this essay. Do you mind reading Sister George in What's in a Name for us? Yes, uh, I, I will read I don't remember the exact year, but let's say it's around my fateful year of 1967 when my brother Tony, at age 24, and I 
at age 26, are headed to St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, to visit our aunt, Sister George. She's come down from Canada on some kind of Catholic church business, and my mother, who has been in touch with her oldest sibling by telephone, says that Sister George is eager to see us. She's a bit of a stranger to us. We haven't seen her since we were kids living in our parents' house on 19 Oak Street in Keene, New Hampshire. And only then on occasion, in the brief time, she was stationed at a parish relatively nearby in Nashua. What I remember most clearly about her is that she's tiny, even tinier than our mother. I also remember a cheerful smile, a shy demeanor, and that we never had a real conversation with her because we spoke different languages. Tony and I meet Sister George at St. A's in a room that looks like a chapel retrofitted into a space that my parents would refer to as a parlor. In a time when some nuns, including my cousin Anne, a sister of mercy with a PhD in education, are wearing civvies, Sister George is still in her full regalia, black habit, gold cross, hanging from a pendant around her neck. As we enter, she looks very nervous, but full of anticipation for our meeting. Her right hand clutches the crucifix that falls from the pendant to the middle of her chest. Such a tiny lady with such an exquisite face full of mirth. We hug her with care. She's so delicately constructed that we're afraid we'll crush her. After our hellos and her bonjour, we step back and there's an awkward silence. Finally, Sister George speaks her first words in English, a bit of slang she must have picked up during her visit at St. A's and that she planned to show off just the right moment and whose nuances of meaning have escaped her. With a sweeping gesture of a hand toward the chair, she says, Pock your ass. Our meeting with Sister George was brief. Nothing changed. We could not connect with her in our language, and she could not connect with us in hers. We never saw her again. Twenty or so years after Tony and I visited her, Sister George retired to the house in Quebec. My mother didn't think she was getting health care, so she worked the phones trying to help her sister. It wasn't until after Sister George had died that my mother learned that the funeral mass had already been carried out and the body buried. Where was her grave? Somewhere in Canada. Now, in 209, in 219, my aunt's order, the Sisters of Joan of Arc, has faded into obscurity. This information I picked up dated August uh, 217 from Catholic Answers Forum. Quote, the Sisters of St. Joan of Arc, who are based in Quebec, closed all of their convents due to age and have just one in Canada. Their charisma was to minister in rectories. Their mother house was sold to a developer who turned the building into condos, unquote. I had never heard that word charisma used in that context before, so I looked it up. Secondary meaning, quote, a divinely conferred power or talent. What of that phrase, minister to rectories, what does it mean? It means the sisters of St. Joan of Arc were cooks and maids at the residences of priests. I've heard people refer to such work as demeaning, but in my ethic, which I have adopted, there was no such a thing as demeaning work. There was only work in the pride you took in doing it as 
well as you could, or the shame you felt if you slacked off. The idea of work as a charisma, a divinely conferred power or talent, is probably the single most important concept I learned growing up as a Franco-American Catholic. It brought me through a number of jobs from age 16 to age 31 when I landed my first slightly prestigious position, sports writer for the King Sentinel newspaper. Before that, I worked as a store clerk, telephone equipment installer, janitor, gas pumper, enlisted man in Uncle Sam's army, mill worker, hospital laundry man, orderly in a mental hospital, landscape laborer, and my favorite charisma, taxi driver. My mother died in 1994 at the age of 85. She called me from the nursing home where she lay crippled and said, I'm going to die tonight. Please bring Medora and the girls. I was surprised when I came across her death certificate. I'd always known my mother as Jeanette Vrackst-Hebert. The death certificate listed her first name as E-L-O-D-I-E. I pronounced that name the way it's spelled in English, Elodie. Maybe there's another way to say it. How did my mother say it? I don't know because I never heard her voice the name. I learned another of my mother's secrets when she was uh, in old age. She often talked about her childhood where she cared for her father, who was disabled by a stroke, who was among her duties to eat meals with him because because of, of, of brain damage. He would eat from her plate and she would eat from his. She recalled that one day she and her friends found him sitting on the ground several blocks from the internment house in Manchester, New Hampshire. They took him home in one of the kids' little red wagon. My mother, my grandmother, Elise Marcotte Vackers, supported the family working in the shoe shop. In her teen years, my mother liked acting in plays, and she talked about starting nursing school at Notre Dame Hospital in Manchester at age 23. One day the math came alive in my mind and I said, you never talk about the five years between high school graduation and nursing home, nursing school. What were you doing during those years? She shrugged and said, I was in the convent. She belonged to the same order as Sister George and the Sisters of St. Joan of Arc. She couldn't bring herself to take those final vows in her sixth year, not because of a crisis of faith, she remained a devout Catholic all her life, but because she wanted a family. When she married my dad, Elphage Hebert, she was 31, he was 28. They were both virgins. They met at an estate in Dublin, New Hampshire, owned by a branch of the famous Cabot clan. My mother was what we call today a nanny for the Cabot children. I don't think she would have liked that word nanny. She was proud to be a registered nurse. Elphage, was born in Keene on Wood Street, named for Smokey Joe, an old-time pitcher for the Red Sox. Nearby are Wagner Street, Cobb Street, Speaker Street, and Hooper Street. Around our roots and Goering Streets, Keene was never a Yankees town, but it was a Yankee town. We French, Irish, Italians, Polish, German, and Lithuanian Catholics were outnumbered by the Protestants. Key might be a Yankee town of English speakers, but in the Hebert household of my parents on both sides, French was the favorite language. The Hebert name of my genealogy goes all over the place because my dad's mother was also a Hebert. My father had fond memories of his maternal grandfather, Alfred Hebert, who was a carpenter in Keene, though he was born in Canada. 
My father's mother died giving birth to my aunt Teresa, and my dad was 13. My grandfather, Arthur, he remarried a Yankee woman, which was how she was referred to in the family, a Yankee woman. And of course, she didn't speak French, so the cat language in the household transitioned to English. My mother was raised on the west side of Manchester, where the language of commerce as well as common speech was French. When my parents started dating, they found they had two things in common. Neither was a drinker, and they both grew up as Franco-Americans. My mother retaught my father the French he had lost when his mother died and his father remarried. French became the language of my parents' romance. So that was the language that they spoke in the home when their first child was born, me. When I started kindergarten in Keene at age five, I spoke fluent French and only a few words of English. I don't remember this, but my parents told me that my experience with language in kindergarten at Lincoln School, I was the only French speaker, was so upsetting to me that they decided to speak only English in my presence. The result, I never again spoke French, nor did so many of my friends with French names at St. Joseph's Elementary School in Keene, the only Catholic school in the area. I didn't know growing up that in the church politics of that time, uh, my parish was considered to be an Irish parish. We had an Irish pastor, Irish curates, and the nuns at St. Joseph's, the Sisters of Mercy, were founded by an Irish woman, Catherine McCauley. Not only were there no instructions in the French language, the word France rarely came up in the curriculum, and the word Quebec never. At home, in my family, in the families of my schoolmates, some of whom remain my close friends to this day, there were no discussions around the kitchen table about French Canadian, our French Canadian heritage, no references on the school grounds either. It was a kind of ghost culture that we carried with haunted parts of our minds. It wasn't until I was in middle school that I learned from my friends that I wasn't the only kid in St. Joseph had a memory. The result for me was that though through some mental alchemy that to this day I do not understand, I killed almost everything I knew of the French language. Even when I studied it in high school and later in college, I just could not learn it. All I remember today is common expletives, intensifiers, and soft swears. I don't know what to call these expressions. I have no idea how to spell the words, so I set them down in this essay, close as I could in phonetic English. And I can count to 12. That's it. That's all I got left of my heritage. Yet that experience of dumping the language and replacing it with another seems to have helped make a writer out of me. For one thing, I was never able to pull out of my head cliched usage in English. I had to invent my own phrases. Also, early on, I paid attention to the way people spoke. I went out of my way to avoid talking like my relatives who spoke English with a French-Canadian accent. I didn't want to talk with a Yankee accent either, nor an Irish brogue, nor any kind of accent. I wanted to talk like John Cameron Swayze. You have to be of an age to recognize the name. You read the news on the Camel News caravans sponsored by Camel Cigarettes. Quote, I'd walk a mile for a camel, unquote. And in case you didn't know, quote, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. My brother Tony's name is actually Omer, O-M-E-R, 
And T-O-N-Y is short for his middle name, Antoine. He's always hated the name Omer, and he has he was not so crazy about Antoine. Unless you wanted an argument, you called him Tony or Anthony, uh, who was my mother's favorite saint, by the way. We had a little shrine in the kitchen of our house on 19 Oak Street in Keene. Its origins is a cuckoo clock. The cuckoo guts had been removed so that the face was open. Sometimes I wish somebody would remove the cuckoo parts of me. Then again, maybe without the cuckoo, there would be no me. Maybe cuckoo is as close a gift from the divine that I'll ever possess. Inside my mother's empty cuckoo clock was a plaster cast of St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost objects. My mother admitted that she had lost something of great value when she prayed to St. Anthony for its return, but she wouldn't say what it was, and I never pushed her on it. In our family, there were more topics that you didn't talk about than ones you did. The idea was to keep the peace. It worked. I've never had a falling out with any family member. For example, I did not tell my devout, devout mother that even as a child, I never had faith in the Catholic God, nor in any God. Let me make a distinction here. I am not an atheist. I'm not smart enough to be an atheist. Maybe there is a God. All I know for sure is that even if he exists, I don't have faith in him. My feeling is that if there's a God, he's a don't-give-a-shit-about-people God. Maybe religious people come from a gene. Some people have it, and some people don't. I don't have it. Uh, in the months before she died, my mom was bedridden in a nursing home with compression fractures in her spine from osteoporosis and untreatable and painful rheumatoid arthritis, which is one reason that I suspect that if there's a God, he's a don't-give-a-shit-about-people God. My mother's mind remained nimble to the end, but not her body. I, I, I was very close to my mother in some ways. I was a mama's boy. I often went to her when I needed advice. The best thing she did for me was accept my future wife, Medora Lavoy. She, she embraced her like the daughter she never had. Medora grew up in Dover as a Lavoy, or is it Lavois? I've heard the name spoken both ways. I speak it both ways myself, and so do Medora and her siblings. Depends on the occasion, the mood, the company. I was the executor of my mother's will, and in the days after her death, I handled everything with great confidence. I never broke down. Almost a year later, somebody sent me a review of one of my books. The reviewer, Jack Barnes, a Maine writer, happened to mention that Franco-American boys were often close to their mothers. When I read those words, I broke down and wept. I've been a professional writer for most of my adult life as a newspaper journalist, novelist, and teacher of creative writing. But the single piece of writing that means the most to me is a poem. I would like to read it to you. It's called My Mother's Donuts. On your deathbed, you told me the stems of the flowers I picked for you when I was a boy were too short to put in the vase. I didn't have the heart to tell you this that. I remembered the smell of the sun on my clothes that you hung on the line on a hot summer day. And in the winter, the smell of the air from the clothes steaming off the radiators. You made donuts, I said. I remember the aroma, the heavenly taste when the donut is still hot from the boiling oil. In those days, people didn't tie their dogs, you said. 
Oh, yeah. They came from miles around, drawn by the smell of your donuts. You always made the mistake of showing them the holes. I couldn't help myself, he said. I laughed. You were too weak to laugh. And in the spring, when Dad burned the dead grasses, do you remember that smell? And the color of the new grass growing through the black burned scar after the rain, the brightest green of the new season? There's no waiting for an answer. You've shut your eyes. I go back in time, see myself picking flowers. Boy's pure love for his mother, so brief. Tony and I are both named after priests. I am named after my mother's older brother by 14 years, the leader of our family, the right Reverend Joseph Ernest Vacris. Everybody referred to Father Vacris as Father Vac even after he was promoted to Monsignor. His lifetime ambition was to become the first bishop of French-Canadian ancestry in the Diocese of Manchester. Father Vac, who, by the way, is a young priest likely married Grace Natalius's parents in Manchester, was deeply involved in the power struggle between the Irish Catholic and French Catholic church hierarchies in New Hampshire. The subject matter of their disagreements was the curriculum in Catholic schools. Like a digress for a moment. Interesting, isn't it? The identity language people used in those days and those of us in my generation still. You had to you had people calling themselves French who had never been to France. And you had people calling themselves Irish who had never been to Ireland, Daryl, Poland, Italy and so forth. The Irish had a strategy for assimilation, deal with the Yankee bosses and their own Americanized English language while at the same time cherishing, sometimes inflating, and always flocking their culture as so-called Irishmen. In the dispute among New Hampshire Catholics over schools, the Irish position came to English only taught in Catholic schools, like the school I went to. Uh, among the French clergy and intellectuals, the French language all by itself was the culture, so the Franco priests wanted Catholic schools to teach French as well as English to preach in French from the pulpit. According to my mother, Father Vac favored a middle course between the two sides, though just what that course was never, or was never explained to me when I was a child, or maybe I just forgot or wasn't paying attention. I do remember that Father Vac's motto was, you can't live one foot in Canada and one foot in the United States. But he contradicted himself when he said over and over again that French was his favorite language. Anyway, the issue became irrelevant when Father Vac died suddenly of a heart attack at age 61 in January of 1956. I was 14 when Father Vac was found by a housekeeper nun at the order of St. Joan of Arc, killed over at his kneeler in his bedroom. Father Vac was my first mentor and also served as my, father's fig my father figure when my dad was in the Navy during World War II. Father Vac's death was the single most traumatic event of my teen years. Father Vac wasn't like any priest I know of today. He never talked to me as if I were a child. He was the only adult who actually conversed with me. He was a hunter and fisherman with a huge gun collection. Tony and I used to play with his guns in the basement of the rectory at St. Edmund's Parish in the Penadville village of Manchester. He hid the ammo. Father Vac taught me the rudiments of boxing and, more important, infused in me a uh, combative attitude that served me well growing up on the east side in Keene. 
Vandervak's given name was Joseph Ernest Vacklist. My given name is Joseph Ernest Vacklist Hebrew. A fact I never knew until I happened to stumble upon my birth certificate when I was in my 20s. I asked my mother, where did that Joseph come from? She told me that in her family, the firstborn son was always named Joseph. But he would be given another name to go by in public to prevent a confusion of too many Joes. Later I learned that the tradition in Canada was, Canada was that all of the sons were named Joseph and the daughters were named Marie. Maybe so, but in my family, I'm the only Joseph among three sons. I find the idea of naming your alpha males after St. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, kind of funny. Here's a guy way down on the priority list of the church and also apparently of the one true God, a beta male, a caregiver, a caretaker, a good provider, a perfect model of a working man of the Yankee Mills. He never complained, but also never got to have a say, and from the accounts I learned growing up, never had sex with his blessed virgin wife. As for my last name, I grew up by Hebert. Medora and I have spent the last six summers, six winters, in New Orleans, where we're A-Bears. I'm proud to have the A-Bear name. I mentioned at the beginning of this essay that 1967 was a fateful year for me. It was fateful because 1967 was the first time I experienced pride in my name when I lived in New Orleans for seven months, working the 11 p.m. to 11 a.m. shift in, as an attendant at DePaul Psychiatric Hospital in New Orleans. I was hired in part because Beth Green, the head nurse, liked my name. I heard the phrase more than once, hey there, that's a fine self-reaching name. Nobody in my part of New Hampshire said, that's a fine New England name. A couple of years ago, a good friend gave me a t-shirt celebrating a river with my name in Nova Scotia in the Grand Prairie region where my people come from. And where the river's name today is pronounced Heverick. The river Heverick. Now my grounds, the Mananoc region of New Hampshire, I'm a Hebet, as in any Hebet. He's a writer. I've been a, a Hebert or a Hebet Far too long in Yankee Land to make changes. It's kind of sweet enough to hear the name spoken the way it feels right, even if I have to travel 2,000 miles to New Orleans. Let me add that my youngest daughter, who grew up in New Hampshire, as Nikki Hebert, now resides in Brooklyn, New York, where she's known as Nicole Ebera. I would like to hear your thoughts. My brother Tony, the second born of our household of three boys, was named Omer after a legendary priest on my father's side of the family. But he was long dead when my brother was born. And as far as Omar was concerned, he was stuck with an old-fashioned French-Canadian name he could not abide that his schoolmates made fun of. When my parents' third son was born, they named him Paul, a name a boy can use anywhere without self-consciousness. My mother used to call him Petit Little P. Sister George remains a vivid presence in my memory house, though I never really learned much about her. Like so many of my friends with French-Canadian roots, keen, I threw off the French language. Sister George reversed the language issue. Well, Sister George was a native-born American. She never learned more than a few words in English, pack her ass. For me, Sister George is the embodiment of perhaps my greatest regret in life now that I'm pushing to age 80 which was running away from my heritage. 
Son of action death when I was a teenager and disturbed me for years. Corporates and school, bloody fistfights, feelings of disassociation from the world I was growing up in. To this day, a grief hangs over me that I now believe that my loss, which I had always thought was in the figure of a person, uh, Father Vac, is only part of a greater loss, part of a greater loss. Call it a confusion of tongues that I've been trying to define with this essay. Which leads me to an irony in the Vacris name. My, my great-grandfather, who I know as Giovanni Vacanisi, migrated to Nova Scotia from La Spezia, Italy, and eventually ended up in Quebec, where his Italian name was given an EST ending and pronounced Vacares. But as my mother recalled growing up as Jeanette uh, uh, Vacares in First Manchester, she was often reminded that Vacares was not a real French name. When Giovanni's son, Jean-Baptiste, came to the States, his Frenchified Italian name was emphasized to Vacris. Father Vacris was quoted in an interview that the Vacris name was a misspelling Vacarisi. However, when I told my story to an Italian woman, she informed me that Vacarisi is not an Italian name. It's likely that the document I saw with Giovanni's last name that Father Vacris believed was the correct spelling was itself misspelled. So then, Vacares is not French, and Vacarisi is not Italian. However, Vacaris is thoroughly at home here in the States, where uh, foreign names are routinely discombobulated and recombobulated to fit the American language. I shut my eyes, and I see my warrior priest, Uncle Father Vag. I see my earthly father, Alphage Hebert a man with only seven years of education who worked 45 years in a cotton mill and who I never really knew until he lived with his last years in my house. I see my brother Tony, who, by the way, now likes to be called Antoine, so I count that as progress. I see my fictional character Howard Elman, a foundling who, like his creator, did not know his claim, nor claim to care about his past, who eventually learned in Spoonwood book six of the driving novels, that his name was actually Latour, and his roots in North America came from old Acadia. In my books, Howard Elman flips off Latour name, but his son Frederick adopts the name, so his son Birch uh, is not an Elman. Birch Latour and his wife Tess will start a new family dynasty with a Latour name. As one who did not get his consciousness raised by this heritage until middle age. That's the best I've done in my fiction to set things straight. One winter day, when I was about 12 or 13, we had a sudden thaw and a heavy rain that flooded the church and school parking lot, which also served as our playground. That night, temperatures plunged and the next morning, the water had frozen solid. I had a nice view of the frozen parking lot from my classroom upstairs. I washed as two nuns in their black flowing gowns and giant white bibs left the convent and started toward the ice. One appeared to be limping. As they came closer to my eye, I identified the limping nun as Sister Gregory, who had been my sixth grade teacher and a favorite of mine. The other sister uh, gave Sister Gregory a push. Suddenly, she 
she shot forward, spun, twirled, moved with dazzling speed. I thought for a moment that she would rise into the sky and the wind, just as Gregory was on some skates. She navigated the entire rink with incredible grace. Something came over me I did not understand, but that was overwhelming and beautiful. The feeling was too good. We Catholics weren't supposed to feel this kind of elation in the earthly realm. I resolved not to tell anybody about it, afraid that somehow I had sinned with this new feeling. You see, even though I didn't believe in the Baltimore Catechism of God, I did believe in sin. It wasn't until years later that I realized that the feeling I had experienced was the feeling of falling in love. Jump ahead two decades at a time when I was writing a piece about Sister Gregory for the Boston Globe op-ed page. Sister Gregory was in her 80s and had retired only a year earlier. She was living in a nice little apartment in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. She was full of vitality with a somewhat sardonic outlook on the world that, of course, I would not have noticed when I was a boy. Well, of course I could skate. I'm from Berlin, she said, pronouncing the... Uh, the pronouncing B-E-R-L-I-N in the New Hampshire way. Here's the part relevant to my story today. She made a strong point that the sisterhood had been the right choice for her. She had only one quarrel with the church, the name that was given to her. My name is not Gregory, she said with emphasis. It's Isabel. Uh, I was on the drive home from that interview when I had a sudden image in my mind of my aunt, Sister George, the sweet little face, her black nun's habit, the pedant around her neck with the cross clutched in her hand. And I suddenly realized that I didn't even know Sister George's given name. Thanks to some research by my good friend Robert Perot of Manchester, I now know my aunt's name. It was Marie Hudson Ann. That's a-N-N with an E at the end. That's awesome. That's it. So again, our guest today has been Ernest Hebert, a writer, teacher at Dartmouth College. Ernie, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show. This has been awesome. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. I, I think you're doing good work. Is there an easy place to find your work if we want to be able to direct people to where they can buy your work? Well, you know, uh, I think I only have one book in print right now, The Old American, which is uh, uh, one, one of my better books. I think they can get that one. But, but anyway, um, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I signed a contract with the Western University Press, which is going to reprint all six, all seven of the Derby books. That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, Ernie. This is this is way cool. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies. Our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.